more importantly, how would you ask that question? Where was God when someone died? Mom, dad, your best friend, your child? Where was God when I got cancer or got sick or discovered I had a horrible disease? Where was God when I got fired or laid off or got turned down for yet another job? Where was God when something bad happened? Sooner or later, we all ask that question. This week, many people in our country have been asking uh, the question, where was God on 9-11? Most of you understand the impact 9-11 had on our country. And since it happened on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, I understand that many of the children and students here today don't remember it. That they see it through the lens of history and not experience. So I want to take a moment and go back in time to the sermon I preached immediately following 9-11. On Sunday, September 16, 2001, I opened with the following story. Reverend Lloyd Prater, an Episcopal minister in New York, pastors a church one block from St. Vincent's Hospital. He spent Tuesday meeting ambulances in front of the hospital praying and helping when he was struck with the reality of the situation. One ambulance door swung open, a gurney rolled out, and the EMT barked out, patient struck an upper abdomen with heavy object. I look at the patient gasping for breath, straining against broken ribs, and covered with a fine layer of gray dust. Struck by a heavy object indeed. He was struck by a building. He was struck by an airplane. He was struck by terrorists. He was struck by hate. Those are some very heavy objects. Preachers are given two responsibilities when it comes to the preaching of God's word. One is to explain the scriptures, relating them to the everyday issues of life. At other times, our job is to take life and explain it in light of the scriptures. This morning, this is what I said 14 years ago, this morning we're going to wrestle with the second of these two tasks. We're going to attempt to take life and explain it in light of the scriptures. To be honest with you, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't have any definitive answers, nor do I have any bottom line explanations. But it is important for us to try, because I think the events of the past week will touch us more deeply and much longer than we realize. So we need to try to make sense of it all and realize how vulnerable and dependent we are. It is at these moments we're most open to God doing some things in our lives. So we have to ask hard questions. Where is God when evil happens in our world? If God is all-powerful and good, why doesn't he prevent evil? The Bible says God is good, so how should we respond to evil? That was 14 years ago this week. And now, 14 years later... Those are still pretty good questions, and it's still an important issue. And saying that the events of 9-11 will touch us more deeply and much longer than we realize has certainly proven to be true. And while it's not an exact match, I look for somewhere in Scripture where an unexplainable tragedy or event has taken place, or in this case is about to take place. And coincidentally... 
Exodus 1 and 2, which was planned out months and months and months ago, without regard to the calendar, is one of those stories. So before we delve into the story, let's stop for a moment and remind ourselves what's going on here. Remember, Exodus is not primarily about Moses or the Israelites or the Egyptians. It's primarily about God. And as I said last week, Israel is the canvas upon which God paints a portrait of his own glory. And over the next year, because that's how long we're going to be in the book of Exodus, we're going to see that each section of the book will show us something new about who God is and what God does. Every part of this book will give us another angle, another perspective, another viewpoint on or about God. So I hope as we study this book together, you'll not just know the stories of Israel. My prayer is you'll know what God is like and understand how that fits into your story and how you fit into his story. And hopefully you'll remember, uh, those of you that were here last week, uh, this book is important because how foundational it is. And there's one issue in particular that's foundational to everything, and that's the subject of salvation. Salvation as we know it in the New Testament dawns in Exodus. Prior to this book, there's no understanding of sort of common New Testament uh, terms and themes the Lamb of God, Passover, bread from heaven, wandering in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, or God is the great I Am. All of that starts in Exodus. This book is vital for understanding the life-changing truths of the Bible. And it tells us as believers about our slavery to sin, freedom in Christ, righteousness through the blood of Jesus, the seriousness of sin, and the need for repentance. And prior to Exodus, God was not known as a rescuing, saving, delivering God. And the Exodus event becomes the defining moment in God's relationship with his people. So that's why we need to study Exodus. It is a foundational book for our understanding of God and the gospel. Exodus is critical to our spiritual lives. Dr. Moyer said this of Exodus, he's a scholar, said there is a contemporary reality about the Word of God so that when we read Exodus, we're not just learning of the past, we're learning of the present. This is a living word for us. Our, ex today, our text today is Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And in that, we're going to see how God delivers his people in dark days through surprising ways. God has heard the cry of his people. He is on the move to deliver them. Divine assistance will come through the birth of a baby into a very dangerous environment. These are indeed dark days in Egypt. That should be the first blank in your outline. Dark days in Egypt. Read with me Exodus 1, starting at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous 
and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The first chapter of Exodus set the stage for us. Last week we learned that as Israel grew numerically uh, in Egypt, they were perceived as a threat to national security. And as a result, the new nationalistic government in Egypt began to deal shrewdly with them, afflict them, oppress them, and then ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Egypt feared that Israel would become too powerful and side with their enemies and become an enemy in their midst. Therefore, they created a government policy of oppression with the hopes of suppressing the growth and influence of the Israelites. And when the bitter conditions don't work, Pharaoh results, uh, uh, resorts to a program of killing the Israelite male babies. In verse 15, we find the king of Egypt calls upon two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. It's very interesting to note that these women are personally named in the text. They're probably in charge of the other Hebrew midwives, and likely, as that custom was, were likely childless themselves. Without giving too much of the story away, it's believed they're personally listed because of the courage that they display in the following verses. They're hailed as heroes and blessed by God. And Pharaoh's instructions to him are both clear and sinister. Verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. It seems that Pharaoh's first step is to quietly figure out a way for the male babies to be killed. Since word would likely spread among the Israelites if these women were suspected of actively killing babies, it seems that Pharaoh wanted these women to figure out a way to deceive the birth parents into thinking that their male babies had died in childbirth. Pharaoh, for his own protection, is advocating the private and deceptive killing of infants. Mass graves would raise too many suspicions, so killing them one at a time is the better plan. Verse 17 tells us what the midwives did. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Notice the text says they feared God. That means they had a greater respect and honor for obedience to God than, that was greater than their fear of the Pharaoh. They engaged in what we today call civil disobedience. And they did it because they chose to obey God rather than men. Biblical history is filled with courageous men and women who refused to violate their conscience and chose to disobey rulers who asked them to disobey God. For example, when Peter and the apostles were told to stop preaching in Jesus' name uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, they say we must obey God rather than men. And rather than take the lives of these innocent children, Shifra and Puah refused to obey the orders of a wicked ruler. Now, does any of this sound familiar to you? It should. I cannot pass by this text 
without saying a few words about our own cultural issues. Because the sad reality, to some degree, and in some areas, these are dark days in America. These are dark days in America. As most of you are aware, there are forces in our country advocating the private and deceptive killing of infants. And I'm not just talking about the horrific Planned Parenthood videos, although that would certainly apply. But even more importantly, because this is how you change a culture, we live in a time where sociologists and philosophers and ethicists at Ivy League universities are advocating that both parents and doctors should be allowed to kill infants up until their first birthday. Dr. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, holds that the right to life is essentially tied to a being's capacity to, quote, hold preferences. And since the inability to hold preferences is common to infants at the beginning of life, and it's common to Alzheimer's patients at the end of life, Singer argues that neither have a right to life. And he hasn't backed off that opinion even though his own mother has developed Alzheimer's. But I think it's very interesting the medical power of attorney for his mom has been given to his sister and not to him because he has publicly said if it's given to him, she would probably not continue to live his own mother. Singer argues that neither infants or those suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's have a right to live. And more recently, he's begun to apply the rules of utilitarian philosophy, his term, not mine, to the mentally and physically disabled, taking away their rights as well. Now, of course, Christianity has always believed in a sanctity of life ethic, which simply put, means that all people have a right to life, both at the beginning and end of life, because they're made in the image of God, which is not limited by disability or capacity or age or infirmity. And in case you're wondering, the PCA, our denomination, has always held to a strong sanctity of life ethic, without apology. So how do we make the analogy between the Egypt of Exodus 1 and the America of utilitarian philosophy? Let me quickly make four observations. Subtle infanticide, the technical name for the killing of infants, subtle infanticide precedes open infanticide. Notice how the king of Egypt tries very subtly uh, to kill the babies before he opens uh, and resorts to open infanticide. If he could get the midwives to kill the baby boys in the birthing process so it looks like a stillbirth, that would be so much more acceptable. This subtle form of infanticide is so much like partial birth abortion today, there is no morally significant difference. Second observation this infanticide was selective. Notice in Exodus 1, it's selective, only kill the boys. It's not identical to sex selection abortion in our day. It's just an analogy. But it does give us a wake-up call. This sort of thing happens for different reasons, different times, but it still goes on. In our day and age, sex selection abortion is almost universally applied to girls. 
more common in China and India, but increasingly being utilized in Europe and America. Third observation, infanticide was ethnically specific. Notice in Exodus 1 that subtle infanticide is ethnically specific, only kill Jews. They're the threat. Again, this is a wake-up call and a warning. Ethnic cleansing happens, and it happens in more ways than you think. You cannot avoid the fact that the founder of Planned Parenthood is a hardcore racist who advocated methods of population control and race reduction specifically targeted against African Americans. And to this day, the abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia industry are overtly biased against those who aren't healthy, against those who aren't wealthy, and against those who aren't white. Fourth, it's important to see God rewards the civil disobedience that refuses infanticide. Look again at Exodus. The king says, kill the baby boys. The midwives refuse. And God blesses them for doing what's right and disobeying the king. And whether they have lied in the process, I'll actually get back to uh, later, but at least we can say is it didn't stop God from being pleased with their courageous refusal to kill the babies. Now, I want you to take note of the fact that Pharaoh's rationale also sounds familiar. It's a very unnatural thing to desire the death of a defenseless infant. And in order to justify the murder of these children, something has to eclipse the conscience. And in Pharaoh's case, it's the protection of the nation. If we let the Hebrews get too many, they'll become the enemy inside. So we kill the boys. We let the daughters live. We can assimilate the women, marry them, take them as mistresses, concubines, slaves, servants, and over two generations we'll make them Egyptian and the Hebrew people will no longer exist. That's the plan. These male children have to die in order to protect our way of life. Again, does that sound at all familiar? You see, our cultural problem uh, is not that we don't value life. Our problem is we value other things more. And it's exactly the same problem in Egypt. The lives of these children are expendable because there's something more important. And finally, I want you to notice these women are prepared to take action, even at great personal risk. Please understand, I'm not attempting to be political. I know these are political issues, but long before they're political issues, they were spiritual issues. And in verse 18, we discover Pharaoh learns his plan's not working. It may have taken some time for the government to realize there's still as many boys as there are girls. And it's clear he's not being obeyed. So he calls the two women back in and confronts them. Verse 18, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives give an answer that some people view as a lie. Verse 19, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. It gives us two possibilities. Some argue that the women lied, and there was nothing wrong with that because Pharaoh, as a wicked ruler, had given up his right to be truthfully obeyed. The other possibility is the women are, in fact, telling the truth. 
the Hebrew women started giving birth without the midwives. Now, they may have done that because Shifra and Pua had sent word to them. Don't call us. That they ought not to use the midwives. Or perhaps they intentionally didn't show up until after the baby was born. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Regardless, it's clear that these women made the right choice. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God had blessed the women. He blessed the nation of Israel because of their choice. Pharaoh then ramps up his campaign of death. Rather than just use the midwives to accomplish his uh, plan, he enlists the entire country. He says, verse 22, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh issues a nationwide decree for genocide. No male baby is safe. Certainly there were official military sweeps of Israelite residents, but there's also the fear that anyone can take matters into their own hands and cast a male baby into the Nile to be drowned. And what you need to note with reference here to the Nile and, and Pharaoh's command, this is an important reference. First, it's a very convenient and uh, easily accessible way for the babies to be killed. According to Doug Stewart's commentary on Exodus, Throwing a baby into the Nile is a lot easier and quicker, involves no cleanup, leaves no evidence, uh, more than almost any other means of killing. The child would simply fall into the water and disappear, out of sight, and hopefully from the Egyptian point of view, out of mind. But the connection to the Nile and death by water is important to understand in light of everything else that is coming in Exodus. Turning the Nile to blood, the killing of the firstborn in every family, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the drowning of Pharaoh's army all have significant symbolic meaning. In Exodus 15, the Song of Moses picks this up when it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And even though the Egyptian army actually rode into the Red Sea from the vantage point of God's justice, they were cast into the sea just like the babies of Israel. When you put all this together, there is this clear sense that these are dark days in Egypt and Exodus opens with a tragic, hopeless situation. The Israelites experience increasing opposition, ruthless slavery, and finally this government policy of genocide. And just like they're in the days of Jesus' birth and the killing of the children in Bethlehem, it's hard to imagine a more desperate situation. And don't think there isn't an intentional relationship between Jesus' birth and Moses' birth and the killing of the children in Bethlehem and the killing of the children in Egypt. We're not dealing with mere coincidence here. The hopelessness of the situation makes God's deliverance of his people even more glorious. The dark days in Egypt are a vital part of the story of redemption. In a hopeless, dark, dangerous, evil environment, God rescues his people. The days are dark and ominous, but God is about to move. And so we move on to the birth of Moses. The command is to kill all the male babies. So what does God do? Sends a male baby. Clearly, that's 
the logical thing. Let's see, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We see Moses was drawn out to draw out. He was drawn out to draw out. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So immediately after the dark picture of Exodus 1, the birth of Moses is introduced. And in the familiar pattern we see in the New Testament with Jesus' birth, we have the deliverance stages set with the birth of a baby into very difficult circumstances. But we also see God's providential protection of this baby, this future deliverer at the hands of three women, his mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. It should be encouraging to see that all the heroes in these chapters are women. All the heroes. Verse 1 begins with the identification of the family lineage in which Moses is born. The child's father and mother are both from the tribe of Levi. This is important because later on the tribe of Levi becomes the tribe of priests, those chosen by God to provide spiritual leadership to the nation, and Moses is the first of these priest leaders from this special tribe. And then according to verse 2, Moses' mother defies the Egyptian law about killing the male babies. She hides him for three months. And after it's impractical and unsafe to keep him, she determines, verse 3, to hide him in a basket. Now the Hebrew word for basket is the same word that's translated ark in the story of Noah and the flood. So whether you put Noah in a big basket or you put Moses in a little ark, it's the same thing. The parallels here to the story of Noah should be obvious. Once again, God saves his people through the protection of an ark. However, this time, it's this small basket floating on the Nile. And beyond the spiritual significance, the ark is very practical. After three months, a baby is difficult to hide. So Moses' mother would likely... Put Moses in a basket during a time of day when he wouldn't be discovered or in the event of a search by the Egyptian soldiers. And his sister Miriam, is another great hero of the story, she's posted nearby to make sure nothing happens. And what happens next is even more remarkable. Pharaoh has a large family, he has many outposts along the Nile River, and one of his daughters comes down to bathe in the river and discovers the basket. 
not any woman, not your random Egyptian woman, probably the only woman that can get away with disobeying the direct command of Pharaoh. Now, as a father who has daughters, I fully understand this not doing what dad says. But that's the case here. It's important to realize it's Pharaoh's daughter. She recognizes it's a Hebrew baby. You can imagine the uncertainty then. But in God's providence, she takes pity on him. And Miriam, who's watching the whole thing, quickly and wisely shows up and inquires, would you like someone to nurse the baby? And the whole thing hinges when she says the decision is made when Pharaoh's daughter says, go. Get the person to nurse the baby. Not knowing that Miriam is going to get Moses' mom to nurse the baby. There's all kinds of irony floating through this passage. Not only get the mom to nurse the baby, but she's going to pay her to do it. So I'll give you your wages. Now consider what's just happened. In the midst of a culture where male babies are being killed, this one's put into hiding, only to be discovered by someone in Pharaoh's house. Then he's put under the protection of the royal family as his mother is paid to nurse him until he's delivered to Pharaoh's daughter one day to become her adopted son. Only God could have orchestrated all these events. It's an amazing story of his providential protection and care. Every detail is directed by a gracious God who aims to rescue his people. You know, sometimes I think about things like this, and it makes me wonder because it seems like life can go in one direction or another with the smallest of decisions or events. On the other hand, if you know a kind and gracious God is behind them, you can rest in God's sovereign plan. He knows what he's doing, even down to the fine details. This section ends with the baby be given a name with which we're familiar. However, it's the first time the name's mentioned in this book. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The Egyptian name Moses has significant meaning. It's chosen because it sounds like the word which means to draw out. His adoptive mother gives him this name because she drew him out of the water. But again, don't miss the intended irony here. First of all, the name Moses implies that out of a season of great hardship and trial comes one who will deliver his people. Out of the very river into which Pharaoh ordered the babies to be drowned is a baby drawn out by the daughter of Pharaoh. Second, the name Moses means literally to draw out and so it is by this man that the people of Israel will be drawn out to meet with God and to become his people. And Moses will be the leader of the drawn out people. In the midst of very dark and difficult days, God has orchestrated the adoption of Moses in order to eventually deliver his people from slavery. And from the ash heap of suffering, you have this glimmer of hope. And looking back, you can see it so clearly. But at that time, no one knew what God was doing. Nobody knew what God had already set in motion, these events that would lead to the liberation of his people. From the banks of some nondescript place on the Nile River, 
God provides a deliverer for his people. That's how God works. You have to get that. Moses, the greatest leader of Israel, was drawn out of the very waters used to kill their children. God delivers his people from dark days in surprising ways. God had heard their cries for help, and God hasn't changed. He still hears his people, and he still delivers them from dark days in surprising ways. Now, as you read this text, you can't help but remember the way in which God has brought about the ultimate deliverance through Jesus. He also came as a baby, born from the right tribe in the right city. His birth is equally nondescript. He was also in great danger of being killed as an infant, and he too is a deliverer. Exodus supports the overall story of the Bible, which is about the deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is born into this world, lives in the brokenness of humanity while committing no sin, and died on the cross in order to provide freedom and forgiveness for people who are enslaved to sin. The Israelites are enslaved physically, and God delivers them through Moses. And that story is the foundation of the greater story of God's deliverance of anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus delivers his people from uh, the domain of darkness. It's Jesus who provides the ultimate redemption. It's Jesus who frees those who put their faith in him from being enslaved to their sin. The story of Moses is about a baby who delivers his people from the slavery of Egypt to become God's people. But the ultimate story of the Bible is about another baby, the Son of God, who dies an undeserved death on the cross so the sins of those who believe in him could be paid. In Exodus, the deliverer is named Moses because she drew him out of the water. In the New Testament, the deliverer is named Jesus because he saves his people from his sins. Matthew 1.21, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I started with the anniversary of 9-11. And the anniversary of 9-11 ought to challenge us to think theologically, especially how it brings to the forefront the reality of evil. The gospel forces us to recognize evil not only around us, but also within us. That's increasingly so today in the wake of ISIS and Planned Parenthood and Ashley Madison. But the gospel points us to the one and only solution to evil, which is Jesus Christ, who's conquered evil and will abolish it once and for all at his much-anticipated return. The study of Christ's return and the study of the end times is called eschatology. It's a big Bible word, theology term. It means the study of the end times. But eschatology is not about millennial positions or the structure of revelation. It is primarily about the problem of evil and how that problem will be solved. I think the sentiment is best captured by the question that that famous theologian Samwise Gamgee asks at the end of The Lord of the Rings. After the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, Sam wakes up from his sleep, surprised to find he's alive and surprised to see Gandalf. And he says, is everything sad 
going to come untrue. That statement's actually quite profound. It's very different than asking whether good things are going to come true. He's asking whether sad things are going to come untrue. And thus Sam's statement, like Christian eschatology, recognizes that there's currently something wrong, something sad in the world. It's a place filled with sadness, cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits uh, redemption. And on the last day, those sad things will be made untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be changed. And we're reminded by Sam's question about the whole point of eschatology. Once again, eschatology is primarily about the problem of evil and how that problem will be solved. It's about how one deals with the sad things in the world. In this sense, then, everyone has an eschatology. The believer, the atheist, the agnostic, the Hindu, the Buddhist. Everyone has to give an account for how evil is going to be dealt with. The question isn't whether people have a belief of end times, whether they have an eschatology, but whether it's compelling and coherent. And I would argue that the Christian worldview, I believe, has a compelling and coherent eschatology. It can explain why the world is the way it is, the fall and sin. It can provide a definition of evil, the violation of God's law. It can provide real hope for the future that God will destroy evil and set all things right. For this reason, it's not a topic reserved for preachers and theologians. It's a topic for every Christian, for that matter, for every person, ever, of all time. We all live in a dark world. And there is no message more relevant to people living in a dark world than a message of how that world will be changed someday. And our eschatology proclaims a rescuer, it proclaims a deliverer, it proclaims a redeemer, it proclaims a savior. Our eschatology proclaims hope to a world that desperately needs it. Our eschatology proclaims that everything sad will come untrue. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Draw us closer to yourself through the revelation of your glory. Lead us to such a great salvation as you reveal yourself as rescuer, deliverer, redeemer, and savior. Build our faith, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, who promises to take everything sad and make it come untrue, and who today lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the benediction from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
God bless you. Have a great week.